Monday is here, and so are we. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Great show on tap for you tonight. And boy, Ira, we had a fun little weekend of sports, didn't we? I know a lot of the leagues haven't gotten back going yet, but we still kept ourselves entertained this weekend. Great golf match on Sunday, and I'm texting you on Saturday, like, turn UFC on, turn UFC on. That was a great UFC match. I had, oh, I forgot all about UFC, and I'd never seen Poirier fight before. And that was, you were right. I mean, you were like, turn this on. This is going to be scrappy. And it lived up to every every part of that. So we'll talk about that in just a little bit. We've also got um, two great authors on today. The first one's going to be Todd Zalecki. Tell us about him. Um, he wrote a book about the DACA, the doc, the life of Roy Holiday, who was the great pitcher for the Blue Jays and the Phillies, and who died, unfortunately, in a plane crash a couple years ago to, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, it's, a, it's an excellent book. I mean, Doc Holliday is a little underappreciated in the pantheon of pitchers. Uh, he first bowed Hall of Famer, one of the best pitchers of all time. So, uh, But unfortunately, it was just the end of the career. It ended a little early when he was 36 years old. But uh, it's going to be a great interview with Todd. He definitely, if there was a stretch where he was the best pitcher in baseball, and I think it was like a hands-down type thing for two or three years there. And you're right, we, I feel like he's kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit compared to some of these other guys. Um, tell us about John Shea, who'll be coming up around um, 7.50. Well, we had um, we had him on last week with the interview with about Willie Mays. He co-authored a book with, with Willie Mays' autobiography. And we're just a couple of minutes at the end. We want to just have the the tail end of that interview. And then next week, Rod Carew. So we had we just we taped the interview with Rod Carew uh, this past week. So we're going to have the a great Rod Carew uh, on talking about his book. And so Rod Carew, uh, excellent stuff. So um, we'll talk more about that a little bit later, and then have him on um, next week, as Ira said. So Travelers Championship is in the books, and we got a, a pretty big name that top of the leaderboard when it was all said and done. Yeah, Dustin Johnson, a huge win. You know, from Jupiter, down here in Jupiter Living, plays over at Banyan K as a member there. And uh, he had won, thir- this is now 13 years in a row, he's won a tournament, which is, well, pretty slick company. Yeah. <laughs> Only Nicholas Palmer, Woods, and Trevino, and Billy Casper have, have had that many years they won. It's now his 21st victory. And it was great. I was a little nervous about this tournament. There were some, uh, some no names that were involved, and you're like, where's this going to break? And I think it was great that Dustin was able to hold on. And then it, Sunday was exciting. I mean, he was, you thought he was, there was a point where I'm saying, it's over, it's over. And then he, gives it right back. It was, um, yeah, uh, we were talking and I, I thought going into Sunday with a little bit of star power that was there that Dustin Johnson was going to have a chance to just take this over and he did for a while and ended up uh, holding on to the win. Let's talk about the tournament. Yeah, I mean, the first day, Mackenzie Hughes, who we know from the Honda, finished second. He's been, he's missed like nine of the 13 cuts this year. It's been terrible, but it came in with a shot of 60, 10 under par his first round. And then the, it was like each day there was a, there was a star and the next round, uh, Phil Mickelson uh, shot another, you know, he was in the tournament. He took the lead after the second round shooting a 63 and uh, had, a, had a great day. And he usually uh, plays, you know, this is, he took last week off because of Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And so he was off last week and played this week. And then he didn't end up having a good rest of the tournament. And the other big star was Will Gordon, who was the SEC player of the year from Vanderbilt. Uh, he hung in there and finished in third place. And he shot a, a 62 on uh, on Friday and to be in the mix. And the big story was a number of the players that had to pull out because of COVID tests. Uh, Brooks Kepka's caddy had COVID. So mm-hmm. then Brooks pulled out. His brother pulled pulled out um, and there were a couple other people that were that were, had to pull out Webb Simpson someone in his family had so you're going to have to deal with that when we have these COVID tests um, that you know if someone has it they're going to pull out so you're just going to just going to get used to this it's going to happen to other sports that some of these players are going to play it's easier in golf because it's not your entire team but unfortunately that's why Brooks wasn't in this tournament and, and it does you know we've talked about how golf is easier to manage than some other sports and of course this is great that they can just pull out make sure that they quarantine and then uh, everything will go go well from there so what else I and then in the third round, Brandon Todd. And uh, Brandon Todd's funny. He he was in 2016 through 2018. He was 
37 to 41 tournaments, he missed the cut. His ranking was 2,043. 2000, that's like two years ago. Then he won the Bermuda Championship and this other golf championship. He's won twice this year. He could have won three times. He shoots a, a 61, so he's leading going into the fourth round by two strokes over Dustin Johnson. And you're like, okay, we got Todd, and then we got Dustin Johnson, and we're ready for you know a situation. Oh, I was going to talk about who missed the cut at this tournament. Molakara, Kali Molakara missed his first cut in 22 tournaments. Yeah, right after he uh, t- uh, tied the record. Yes. <laughs> and Tony Finau missed the cut. Bubba Watson, we talked about, he was a three-time winner. He missed the cut. Gary Woodland missed the cut. Justin Rose missed the cut. And uh, Justin Thomas, another bad you know tournament to miss the cut. So it was like some big names. This 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 course was pretty easy. And that's why I think, you know, we talk about Tiger playing this. Like, he doesn't want to play these tournaments where you have to really hit these 20 under pars to win. And I don't blame him because <laughs> it takes, a, not that it takes a skill out of it, but what he does best, I think it takes out of it. Um, just before we move on, you want to talk just for a minute about how, what's going on with the coverage coming up here? Because I know these networks uh, had a little bit of an issue. Yeah, but just, I want to just jump on Sunday about okay, that what sure. happened on Sunday is that DJ was able to I mean, he was down two strokes going into Sunday and all Todd did was like par 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 and DJ was birding and bogeying birding and bogeying but he finally took the lead uh, had a, he had a you know his 20 and 18 he was shot 20 under par but on the 12th hole Todd was still in the tournament only two shots back and then he it was in the fairway for a second shot on a four on a par four and he ended up getting a triple bogey blowing himself out of the entire mm-hmm. tournament it just shows you one hole and he just was terrible and the next thing is that uh, uh, Dustin Johnson then bogeyed the next hole. So, I mean, here he has the tournament in his way, and he bogeyed it. And then Kevin Streamline, Streeland, uh was then hanging around there a couple strokes back and being able to hang in into the tournament. So it wasn't like – and Dustin only ended up by winning by one stroke. And there was that rain delay at the end. I'm like, we're watching it. Dustin has a two-shot lead. And then he comes out of the two-shot lead, knows where this next shot was going to be. And then he bogeyed 16, but then he hung on and won by one stroke. But it was it was like really uh, the, in the fourth round, it was Streeland and uh, – Todd and uh, and Dustin Johnson. It, it, do you, I bet um, every player's got a little bit different feeling about a rain delay. I'm sure some of them like it, but I bet most of them just don't want to walk off the course when they're playing good like that, Ira. I mean, I, and you it, know your shot. They, they supposedly hit the same shot he had to hit like 10 times, and he comes out and he hits a bad drive. Like, you know your shot, you're going <laughs> to hit. You know exactly what you have to do, and you think about it for an hour and a half, and then you come back and you make a bad shot. And he's one of the top golfers in the world. You want to talk a little bit about uh, Fox? Oh, yeah. So, well, this is interesting going forward. The U.S. Open has been on, was on NBC for a while. Then it was on Fox for the last couple of years. They signed a deal where they paid him $100 million a year. It's like a 12-year, a $1.2 billion. Uh, Fox now has got out of the deal because they say threats in golf. We're going to put you on FS1. We're losing money in this. And golf actually said, okay, and they cut their rights fee. They went to NBC for $50 million. So it just shows you where rights fees are going the other way. We just notice every year it's more and more and more. And, that, and, I, and I couple that with another story about Under Armour and UCLA. Under Armour signed a deal where they pay UCLA $30 million a year, like three, four years ago. Now Under Armour's trying to get out of that deal. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at these contracts, like these players, we talk about Dak Prescott. I don't know if these big contracts are going to be there you know, that you're in the future because you're seeing now suddenly this pullback from the COVID and from other things mm-hmm. about what's going to happen. I don't know if someone... Uh, a golf writer actually wrote up that Fox has got a bad break with this. They've gotten some like just bad U.S. Opens, and just, whether the field was bad or t- Tiger didn't make the cut, like they've gotten kind of a bumpy road. And edge. it did where it was super difficult. They've had they've had a rough go of it, and it didn't work this year because they're going to move it to the fall when they're going to have their NFL. So they couldn't yeah. have shown it anyway this fall. So that was a mess because they're going to play it in in, in uh, October, and there was the middle of football season when they broadcast. Or NBC doesn't broadcast football. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So Ira, I was not expecting my phone to go uh, crazy yesterday, 
and it did. And I, I had to fact check this text, these this series of texts, because I just didn't believe it. Cam Newton is a member of the New England Patriots. Did not see that coming. There's always my birthday is June 28th, and I'll tell you what that Happy was yesterday. Birthday. Thank you. And I'm telling you, there's always something that goes down. Like Dwayne Wade <laughs> signs. I think it's when he signed with Chicago on June 28th. Like there's always something on June 28th. So I was like, wow, nothing went the whole day without a signing. And then Cam Newton going to the Patriots. So. Look, I, it's a it's an incentive laden deal, and people were pushing that he was going to go there for a long time. And I just thinking that well, they went, went you know, did it fit? Did it not fit? Um, I think it's potentially worth the risk. I mean, I, I think that for, for seven million dollars, you can't really go wrong in this situation. And Cam has, has everything to prove. He's trying to get another deal, so I agree with you there. And and look, there's been situations I've been back from Corey Dillon when they went to New England and it worked out, you know, for them. And then they get Randy Moss and it shows. But there's certain situations where they've tried to. Now, he's no off field problems, but just the question is, can he be healthy? Is he going to be that? And, and supposedly I've heard quotes today when Belichick was really complimenting uh, Cam and said, you know, before this was like three, four years ago, like he's the best quarterback we faced. I mean, it's interesting. Cam's decline happened against Carolina. I was at that game when T.J. Watt sacked him and I was there. And that's when they were riding high. They were six and two and they were great. And after that game, then the the Panthers fell apart and, uh, and and Cam fell apart. What do you think this means for Jarrett Stidham? Because that, I mean, they've been hyping him up in that organization for a couple of months now. And now all of a sudden, hey, we got Cam Newton. So, sorry. Um, I think, <laughs> look, I wasn't a fan of Jarrett Stidham when he played college. I was shocked that he was going to be to me. I thought he was inaccurate and, at Auburn. And so I'd like to see, I, I wasn't hold, holding out hope that he was going to be this savior for the team. Um, I don't know. Maybe Belichick could find, find something with him. Maybe they think he needs another year to get ready. I'm not sure. But at this point, I mean, if Cam Newton, if he doesn't start over Jared Stidham, then that's going to be an issue. He's healthy. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that's going to work out. I mean, they're not going to give him fair reps. I don't think you're bringing him <laughs> in there to make this a QB competition. I think it's Cam's job. Um, let's bring in our intern, Harrison Vapnick. He's a, a diehard Patriots fan. And, you, you know, Harrison, when this came across to me yesterday, I'm thinking, what are they doing? Why not just go? Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of holes. And if, if it were me, I would have let Jarrett Stidham go out there, win his three or four games, have a top five pick, and do everything I could to get Trevor Lawrence in the building. But you're a little more confident. Well, the Patriots are still contenders. Like, we're not talking about this was a 7, 9, 8, and 18 last year. This is a 12 and 4 team who was just one more stop on Ryan Fitzpatrick away from being a 13 and 3 team that would have had the number two seed and would have hosted Kansas City in a playoff game. Instead, they obviously hosted Tennessee in Tom Brady's final game, and it's a loss. And the Patriots' defense, they did lose Kyle Van Noy and Jamie Collins, but they're still probably one of the top units in the NFL. Last year, in games, they got 17 or less points. They were 12-0. and When the offense couldn't score more than 18, they were 0-5, and that's including that game against the Titans. So if there's just a bit of an offensive raise at quarterback, Cam's obviously his athletic ability. People talk about the less weapons the Patriots have. Cam Newton's weapons, when he went 15-1 and won the 2015 NFL MVP and the Panthers got the Super Bowl 50, his top weapons were Jonathan Stewart, Philly Brown, Devin Funches, Greg Olson, and Ted Ginn. You tell me if that's an upgrade or downgrade for the Patriots have right now. I think that's about fair. I think it's about even. <laughs> yeah, but you're also you're not bringing in Cam's athletic ability. Oh, absolutely. So. One thing that would lead me away from that is just I think that your division is so much better. And you're not going to get those you know two easy games against Miami the two easy games against the Jets these teams should be a little better this year which made me think that this division finally has some parity and that they wouldn't you know typically they get five free wins in division and so without that this year I think it's going to be a lot more difficult and I, I can't see them winning if they win nine games I'd be absolutely shocked well I think they're going to win maybe 10 or 11 now but you're definitely right the division is definitely better to attack of layout I don't know if he's going to start immediately with the Dolphins 
The Jets obviously have Sam Darnold. The Bills, they had a very good year last year. We'll see if they can match that again. But who's the best coach in the AFC? Still Bill Belichick. They still, still have Josh is. McDaniels. They still have Gerard Mayo calling defensive play calls. It was a great in his first year last year. So I'm still going to take the Patriots coaching staff over everyone else. I think the schedule, it's really tough early on. But down the stretch run, they got the Chargers, the Dolphins, the Bills, the Jets to close out the year. I think it's very favorable toward December when the weather's getting cold, and I think the Patriots That's are going to get play hot football. and head to the postseason. That's when they play football. And, and then you're right. It is at the beginning. I think they get Seattle and KC yep. Seattle in the first Kansas four City weeks. Before. That's not That's not very fun. No. But we'll see what happens. I mean, best of luck to you guys. You do now have the best quarterback in the division. Again. Yeah, without question. And the other concern is Cam's injuries. As Ira mentioned, that Thursday night football, November 8th, 2018, Carolina entered 6-2 and with the third-best record in the NFC. Second half, Cam gets hit by TJ Watt on the shoulder. Cam, entering that game, his quarterback rating was 102.1 with 17 touchdowns and four interceptions, which were all better than his 2015 MVP year halfway through the season. Then collapse after that, missed the final two games. Panthers finished seven and nine. So this can, our intern Harrison comes prepared. So I, I do appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you. typically we're just flying by the seat of our pants over here. Iron. No, I kid, I kid. Thank you very much, uh, Harrison Papnek. You're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies Channel. Iron, what, what did you think when this came across? I thought that well, first of all, ESPN Radio's interns only talk about what the best Miley Cyrus song. Is. <laughs> that was that was their topic of what was the, what was Miley Cyrus's greatest song. When they said that I Miley Cyrus, I didn't even think of like Miley, like what is great. I'm like, what was that, a pitcher? I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't realize they were talking about Yeah, it sounds like a 1900s pitcher. <laughs> yes, I wasn't sure about that. Great job, Harrison. Uh, no, I, I look, I was something that I wasn't, it was like, oh, wow, it's Cam Newton. But I wasn't like that surprised when you think about it. They, that's, it was a perfect landing spot for him. And you see Jameis Winston, who went to, I mean, his went to back up Drew Brees. I don't think you had to be a situation where Cam Newton had to be a starter. So it was either going to be in the LA Chargers or this situation where he had to go and step in. I, he Cam cannot be a backup somewhere. No, I, I agree with you. And, and I mean, I think he would have actually taken a backup job if that was just how it shook out and that was the only um, contract he could get. I think Kim... Kim's matured. I do think he's much more of an adult than he was, you know, when he came into the league. And I think he's seen his play drop from MVP caliber every year. And I think it's starting to bother him. Maybe Belichick fixes that right away. And then, you know, I'm not going to be completely shocked if that happens. One of the benefits of Cam uh, in Carolina, though, is they bent that franchise to him. Bill Belichick's not bending a franchise to anybody. You foresee that being an issue? Maybe them butting heads a little bit? No, not at all. I think Cam knows what the situation is, and I and I think that that he'll fit in. But it's weird. It's going to be you say he'll fit in. It's like, but Tom Brady was the one who was like the general of the franchise. So you're not going to have that, and That's it's true. going to be interesting. The Patriot way was Belichick's way, but it was also Tom Brady's way. So we're going to see what happens and who's going to be the leaders that step up in the locker room now without Brady being there. Speaking of the Patriots way. Isn't it just so patriot that this announcement came out 17 minutes after they got um, some fines and some stipulations put on them next season? Talk about bearing a lead. Well, it was happened last year. It was the stupidest thing. They were filming like your day at the job, the scout, showing what he does like for work. And they were just showing a picture of him. And then they caught some action on the film against the Browns versus the Bengals. And they asked the, the, bang, the Browns for permission to film. And the Browns said fine. And then some of the camera caught some of the action. It's not even was not a part. It was an independent contractor. It had nothing to do with Bill Belichick. It was like the team's marketing department. Mm-hmm. And they lose a third round pick for that, which is ridiculous. And I guess it's going to go down on Belichick's resume that's happened. But if you watch the video of this, they actually confiscated the video. It was like players sure, the running, yes, running <laughs> off, running back. Who, I mean, I, again, a lot of this, first of all, I was this was ridiculous. And I think a third round pick for this was crazy. Clearly it was, and it was just it was not on purpose at all. And they just caught a little of the sideline. I think the league is just trying to be mean to the, the Patriots. If it wasn't the Patriots 
mo to get caught like this. Yeah, nothing. and I think that that's a big part of it um, as well. Just you know because of the fact that they've been in this situation so many times. And I do believe this leaked the week before they played the Bengals. Like the Bengals were the next team. It was after a bye too during the bye week. Like you know, and they were like, a twenty point favorite. Yeah, like they needed like, <laughs> Bill, Bill Belichick after a bye really doesn't need it. But um, let's uh, talk a little NHL real quick, and uh, maybe Harrison can chime in here again because I know he's he's in in with this in on this with me. But what the NHL has done here is bizarre. They basically eliminated seven teams from the playoffs. They had their lottery. None of them were eligible for the first overall pick. The the Detroit Red Wings won 13 games last year and were not eligible for the first pick. So what's going to happen is this play-in series, the eight teams that lose and don't get the play-in series – all split a 12.5% chance to get the first overall pick. This year, it happens to be a generational player. What do you know? Alexis Lafreniere um, from Montreal. So some team that's not even the worst teams in the league is going to get a generational talent. Teams like Montreal, Harrison, to me, should lose on purpose. This team is, they're not going anywhere beyond that round. Why wouldn't you want a 12.5% chance to get this kid in the building? No question. And it's crazy that every team that's playing the qualifying round that loses is all going to have a 12.5 chance to get the number one pick. So, for example, the best team... Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh could, Penguins could get it. Yeah. And the Montreal Canadiens are as polar opposite hockey teams as you're going to get. The Penguins were just a few points back of number four seed, the Philadelphia Flyers. The Montreal Canadiens were so close to not making the playoffs. They were so far back. Like, if the season didn't get on pause, they're nowhere close. Now, Pittsburgh, if Montreal somehow pulls an enormous upset in the qualifying round... The Pittsburgh Penguins could get the first pick in the draft and heading into next season have one of the best young players paired with Sidney Crosby and basically the heir to Sidney Crosby (laughs) in Pittsburgh. It's just crazy to think about. Ira, this... I mean, I'm sure it's not going to bother you all that badly if Pittsburgh lands someone like this. But you know how this this already, Ira, speaks to me like the, what was it, 1985 NBA draft where clearly... They really wanted Patrick Ewing in New York. So it's just like, you know, you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but the rule makes so little sense. And now you've got teams like Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Edmonton, which they would all love to see this kid go to, have a shot at him. So it's, it's a little weird. It's just those sports with the generational, again, LeBron, when LeBron f- uh, fell to, you know, to, to Cleveland in terms of how these lotteries work out. And it's just in those sports like hockey and basketball, when one player can just make that major difference and just transform a franchise. And you can see it in hockey and see it in basketball and not so much in football and certainly not in baseball. Um, speaking of baseball, I mean, speaking of um, NBA, do you see the NBA's first game back is Zion Williamson? Of course. Yeah, not the latest. They want Zion in their first game back. I love it. You, we mentioned earlier, uh, you texted me um, Saturday night. Hey, Mike, you watching this fight? Forgot completely about it. Popped it on and saw a great fight between Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker. Well, they're both lightweights. They're ranked third and fifth in the world. Dustin lost to Khabib, who was, of course, the champion. But he beat Max Holloway and Hooker beat Gilbert Burns, who we're going to see on the 251. And Justin Gaethje, who just won. So they, they've each had great victories. And this is one of these fights that was like the perfect fight because they could grapple on the ground. And you saw these great wrestling moves. But also they stood there and just pounded each other. So it was like a combination. It's not like they had both skills. At both. When you watch them, you're like, these two guys are really skilled. They're very good. And they're very even and that's what you what you love when you watch a fight like that and Cormier you know just barely won the fight but it, it could have gone it was one of those things at the end where everybody was, t- was tweeting out it's like I don't care who wins it could be anybody could have won this it, yeah it was exactly it, it was it was entertaining regardless uh, needless to say I think our next fight is going to be from Fight Island yeah that's going to be that's two, UFC 251 on July 11th it's going to be awesome we talked about it last week we'll probably preview it next week in terms of the four championship matches they really these are fighters that they couldn't get in Vegas these are four more of the foreign fighters they were running 
running out of fighters to write in Vegas. And now this is going to be in Abu Dhabi and they call it Fight Island and they're going to be uh, those. So we'll, it'll be great to preview that. And it's going to be it's going to be their best pay-per-view card ever. What um, what's going on in the English Premier League? We don't talk enough EPL on this show. <laughs> well, Liverpool, they won their first Premier League championship in 30 years and uh, they clinched it because Chelsea beat Manchester City. And they're the fastest team to ever win EPL title, doing it in seven with seven games to play. Um, they did. They broke their own record from 1972, and uh, they've gotten 104 points in the last 38 games, going back to last season. And this is, you know, just a great win. I mean, the fact that they were the Premier League was able to come back. The, you know, people really view the Premier League as right under the NFL in terms of league value. If you value the oh, franchises, yeah. and uh, the fact they were able to come back and do this and, and get that in, that's why they wanted to have finishing. And the Bundesliga in Germany was also able to get their season finished. And so there's a question we're debating: Can we get these seasons finished? These two leagues were able to get their seasons finished. Liverpool was my club as a kid. I love Steven Gerrard. Reminded me of Derek Jeter, just the guy who did it the right way. Uh, what's going on in NASCAR? Um, well, we had the Pocono race last week, which was very exciting at the end uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what happened. And then uh, where where you had Ryland Blaney won at the final. It was Monday, so we were doing our show, and the issue with Bubba Wallace came up with a noose and the flag and all those things. And, and Bubba ran really well on Monday. I was watching most of the race when we had our show after our show was over, and Blaney held on and, and won at the end at the crazy ending where all the cars were crashing around. But then they actually ran twice, Saturday and Sunday, and uh, Denny Hamlin was second on Saturday to Kevin Harvick, and then on Sunday they reversed roles. So these have been the two best drivers since they've been back. Denny Hamlin drives Toyota, Kevin Harvick a Ford, and uh, so it was, it was a good race. Two good races in Pocono, on the first time they ever did a back-to-back Saturday and Sunday race without fans. Real quick, Ira, what's going on in tennis? Oh my gosh. Well, Djokovic, who's the world's number one player, had a tournament, the Atria tournament, and it ended up in Croatia where they don't have a lot of COVID cases. And ended up he got it. Dimitrov, like five of the players that played in it did. And uh, there was a lot of questions because they were not just playing tennis, but they were dancing and there was parties and everything. So a lot of criticism towards Djokovic about how that was handled. And it, it puts issues in terms of how the U.S. Open is going to be handled. I mean, that's one thing. We always think tennis is the easiest sport, but it's also the most international sport that you have all these players and they all live in all different countries and have to put them all together in New York and that's going to be a problem. I was quite confused. This story broke about the same time as Nikola Jokic getting it. The yes, basketball, but player. he was at the tournament. Also, he was there. Oh, is that okay. so? That's they were all there. So with Djokovic and whatever. I mean, it's, but I heard <laughs> someone mention Djokovic, and then I'm listening about Djokovic. Have I'm like, wait, did they mess the names right. up? Am I going crazy? No, no, that was a, a little strange. Uh, let's get into it. Ira, we've got a couple of good interviews tonight. Let's go uh, right now to our buddy Todd Zalecki here on Iron Sports. Okay, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Todd Zalecki. Um, he just wrote out the book is out now called Doc Holiday, uh, the life of Roy Holiday. Uh, it was in bookstores today, and you can uh, order it online. Uh, thanks a lot, Todd, for coming on Iron Sports. I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. So, I mean, Doc Holliday is an interesting. For a decade, he's the best pitcher in baseball. First ballot Hall of Famer, 203 wins, two Cy Youngs. But it's like how his career went. It just it ended so quickly, and then of course, unfortunately, he passed away. It was it was you know you chose to, to focus on him because it really you know there's no other books about uh, about Doc Holliday, even though he was the pitcher of the 2000s. Yeah, he really was, and there was a lot of different reasons I wanted to kind of write write the book. And uh, you know, certainly from a baseball perspective, he has such a unique story. Um, you know, former first round draft pick, almost throws a no hitter in his second big league start. But then in the 2000 season, a couple years into the big leagues, he posts a 10.64 ERA. You know, to this day, it's still the single season highest ERA of in, in baseball history of any pitcher that's ever thrown 50 or more innings in a season. And you know, as I researched the book, I, I came to realize that 
not no other Hall of Famer even remotely came close to having a season that terrible. So I kind of wanted to figure out, you know, how did this guy go from being almost a first-round bust to, like you said, being a first-ballot Hall of Famer? And so I, I started to dig into that. Um, and, you know, I found so many different things that I just – that gave me, you know, a passion for kind of telling his story. Uh, and, and, and one of them is, you know, his devotion to sports psychology. You know, the mental side of the game was critical for Roy to be successful uh, as a baseball player. And that kind of became his – what he wanted to become his second career. You know, he had, he had taken a, a job with the Phillies as a mental skills coach before he died. I mean, you're right. As you said, he was the best pitcher in the history of Colorado in high school. Um, we had just Keith Law on our show, and he talked about how the risk is always drafting uh, first-round uh, uh, high school pitchers, and, the, and, they're, and they're usually all busts. But and you said and his war wins against average was 64, and the next 13 after him was .3. So it shows that and – and I'm a Pirate fan, so the Pirates passed on him, of course. But it's that it's – that, the fact that he came in with high expectations to the Blue Jays and then just was horrendous, not just bad or average, but just like the worst ever. And they sent him down to single A and said, you're just going to rebuild everything that you know about it. And they had uh, Mel Queen work with him. But talk about besides the mental, even if they changed his arm angles and everything just to get him to go from being like he couldn't even throw the ball into one of the most dominant pitchers of all time. Yeah, he was he was very, very hittable early on. They called him Iron Mike. <laughs> because his, his, his delivery was very over-the-top, kind of like the old pitching machine, uh, batting practice machine. And so Mel Queen, who's kind of like the, the fixer for the Blue Jays, you know, he, he could solve any problem, former pitching coach. Um, you know, Roy went down to A-ball, like you said. He actually wasn't pitching that good in A-ball. I mean, he was, he was in his early 20s. He should have been dominating these guys. He had been in the big leagues for a few years. He was just doing eh, okay, you know. Uh, so they, they promoted him to double A. He thought it was a promotion, but really what it, what it was is they put him on the phantom injured list, and he worked with Mel Queen. Mel basically tore him down completely, mentally and physically. And he said, listen, if you don't do everything I tell you, you're going to be out of the big leagues by the end of the year. And he basically, I don't want to say scared him, but he, he, you know, he, he made his point very, very clear to Roy. And Roy was embarrassed and humiliated with how he had been pitching. You know, he had been touted as the next Roger Clemens, as the next Pat Henkin for years. He was going to be the savior to the Blue Jays franchise. And now he was like just what he thought was a miserable failure. And so he said, all right, Mel. And he took the abuse, and uh, he changed his arm angle. The ball started to move. And in talking to a lot of people about that chapter in Roy's life, it was almost instantaneous how quickly he took to it. They said, boy, he was only gone for a few months. He came back, and he was a completely different pitcher with a completely different outlook. We look at pitchers today, and people go back in time, and they're like, well, like, we just had John Shea did Willie Mays, and he was talking about how his stats, people didn't really interpret his stats the right way. He came, like if Willie Mays was today, he'd be like Mike Trout winning MVPs every year. And you went through that run of 2002 to 2000, I mean, in, when he was with the Blue Jays. You know, he was he only won what, that one Cy Young, but he could have won in 2002. He was 12-3 and three one year, then 16-5, 16-7, 20-11. And you're like, you know, looking back with the wins against Av- uh, replacement player, he could have won like two or three more Cy Youngs during that dominant period. But he also, he was, never made the postseason, so we didn't see him in the big postseason games during that time. Yeah, so in a weird way, he was kind of an underrated, underappreciated pitcher, even though everybody regarded him, even though everybody had faced him, feared him, and just idolized him, you know, in terms of 
uh, you know, the best pitchers in baseball. He was, he kind of flew under the radar. I mean, he was pitching in Toronto, so they don't get as much attention as some of the U.S. is some of the U.S. teams. Uh, you know, he, you know, he he, did, he wasn't in the postseason with the Blue Jays, like you mentioned. So nobody really got to see him on that type of stage. And you're right. You know, back then, the BBWA voters that vote for Cy Young. They kind of just looked at wins, ERA, and saves. You know, so like a guy that won 23 games was going to win the Cy Young over a guy that won 20, even though the guy that won 23 games might have benefited from a better offense and a weaker division. And yeah, you know, if you look at the numbers, Roy should have probably won at least a couple more Cy Young awards with the Blue Jays. And if you look at his 2011 season with the Phillies, uh, he won 19 games that year. Clayton Kershaw won 22. But if you look at wins above replacement just as a measuring stick, he was way better than Clayton Kershaw that year. And then the one thing for your book that came out is just his his obsession, his workout routine it would be running. I mean, I know people do stuff on their off days, but here's someone who was just, I mean, this was just, the, it was crazy in terms of how he pushed himself. He was there at 530 every morning, his dedication. And then you talked about how his knowledge and his studying. I mean, he was 24 seven, 365 or whatever during the season was focused on being the best baseball pitcher. Yeah, you know, the, the, the fear of failure from those early years in his career kind of was a nonstop motivator for him. And when he discovered Harvey Dorfman, the, the late great sports psychologist, Harvey kind of gave him a path to greatness. He, he taught him about the importance of preparation. He taught him the, uh, the skill set, I guess, on the mound, kind of how to focus, stay focused, you know, not lose your edge. And, you know, he, he realized that for him to feel confident on the mound, as good as he was, even if, even if say, that night he was going to face the worst team in Major League Baseball, uh, if he did not prepare how he thought he needed to prepare, he wouldn't feel confident. So he did all of that stuff. I mean, certainly for a physical advantage as well. You know, you run to build your endurance. You lift weights to build your strength, maintain your strength. But it was also a box that he just had to check. So, you know, I'm sure there were many days when he did not feel good, but he ran anyway. He, you know, there's many days he felt good, but he, but he lifted weights anyway, because if he didn't, then that fifth day when he had to pitch, he would go, oh, man, I kind of dogged it this week. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to feel good on the mound tonight. And, and he would not allow himself to feel that way. So he never, he never you know, he never skipped on his work. And then when we, where people in the, you know, people find out about Roy Holiday is when he was traded to the Phillies. And it was one of those trades where he wasn't demanding a trade. He just, I mean, they were, the Blue Jays were dismantling the entire team. They were going to feel like, you know, as we see now in baseball, almost like a virtually a minor league team. And they worked with him in the trade and just, it was hard. I mean, it was hard to make that trade with the Phillies and it was actually going to go down in 2009, but they got Cliff Lee instead. And then in 2010, you talked about, it was really neat how you talked about how they had to work extension. They had to trade Cliff Lee out of Philadelphia. And, uh, and then he comes to Philadelphia in 2010, but really with not hard feelings at all to Toronto it wasn't you know the fans still loved him it wasn't like he was making demands he was helping the team out and being traded yeah you know he kind of knew that you know he was getting up there in age uh, he had a lot of miles on the arm he knew he had only so many more opportunities and so you know he, you know he didn't say you've absolutely got to trade me or I'm going to sit out or anything like that but he did say 
listen, I'm a free agent after the 2010 season. I, you know, I'm not going to resign with with the Blue Jays. You know, I, I have to go to a team that's that has a legitimate chance to win the World Series. He knew he knew it was not going to happen in Toronto, uh, so he said, listen, you can keep me. I'll pitch in 2010 in Toronto. I love it here. You know, I want to win here. But uh, after the season, I'm going to leave. So, you know, the, the Blue Jays saw the writing on the wall, and they decided to, you know, <laughs> we got we got to get something for this guy. We can't just lose him and maybe get a draft pick as compensation. So um, Roy said, hey, I want him. If you're going to trade me, Blue uh, Phillies or the Yankees would be my two choices. And uh, the Phillies ended up being really aggressive and then ultimately getting him in, in December of 2009. I mean, people forget the Phillies, they had won it in 2008, um, 2009, they, they lost to the Yankees. So he was in terms of being in the midst of everything. I mean, the Phillies bring him in and then trade Lee. It's all this commotion. I mean, they were really creating this powerhouse team. So he comes in 2010 and he has a great year, wins the Cy Young. But you mentioned now we're down here in South Florida and West Palm Beach and the game against the Marlins where uh, he didn't even have his family come over when they're over on the, on the West side of the state. And he pitched that perfect game against the Marlins in the old, uh, Joe Robbie Stadium not at the New Orleans Park, but but a perfect game. There's only been 20 pitchers to pitch a game like that. And just an amazing, you know, just it was it, the way you describe it. It was like a perfectly easy game for him. Yeah, it, it, it really was. You know, he had he had struggled um, the start before at home against the Red Sox. So it was his first really poor start um, for the Phillies. And a lot of fans were kind of getting on him about, which is crazy, but not always say getting on him, but they were like, oh, boy, are they, are they pitching him too much? Is he throwing too many pitches? And he came into that start super motivated. He wasn't super sharp the first two innings, but because Roy had fo- honed his focus uh, through Harvey Dorfman, he, you know, his mantra was one pitch at a time, one pitch at a time. In other words, he yanks a cutter out of the strike zone. He's not going to sit there and go, oh, I can't believe I, I yanked that cutter. I can't believe I yanked it. What, what am I doing out here? He would forget about that pitch. And he would throw the next one. If he got a bad call on a pitch, a pitch he thought should have been a strike, he didn't sit there and focus on it and stare at the umpire. And that allowed him to kind of stay in his, stay in his game. And then, boom, he, start, he started to find his groove in the third inning there and then just absolutely dominated, dominated the Marlins the rest of the way. And then he makes the playoffs and the first game against the Reds. And I remember it was an afternoon game. I was at a function I had to go to for work and I saw how the game was progressing. And then by the sixth inning, I'm like, I got to go find and watch this. And I remember running to these bars in New York and like, turn this baseball game on. And they go, we don't have TBS. And they're, you know, it's hard. It's hard to win. This game's like on. It was like, whatever. I couldn't get the channel. It was insane. And I was like yelling at bartenders, but to pitch, <laughs> you know, be, have only, there's been only been two no hitters in the history of baseball in the postseason. Don Larson, and Roy Holiday, so that was just you know another you know to, and pitch two a perfect two no hitters in the same year is just crazy. It, it, it was uh, you know that was probably the most fun game um, I've ever covered in my, my career. I've been covering baseball since two thousand three, and that was by far the most fun I've had, the most the most memorable game I've had. Just because, again, like you said, only two postseason no hitters in baseball history. And I got to be there for it. And he was way better than he was that night against the Marlins. You know, I mentioned against the Marlins in that perfect game, he was kind of struggling the first two innings to find with his command and control. That that postseason game against the Reds, he was on it from the very first pitch. And you know, I write about this in the book. Roy had nine days to prepare from his last start of the regular season uh, to the start against the Reds. And in his mind, he was like, the Reds have no chance. Because <laughs> I, 
I'm going to out-prepare them. There is not a, there is no chance that the Reds are going to out-prepare me for this game. I'm going to study every hitter. And not only did he study every hitter, he studied every pitcher that he thought might hit in the game. So he, he, he studied Travis Wood, who he thought might come into the game as a long reliever. And guess what? Travis Wood came into the game as a long reliever, uh, as a long reliever and, and pinch hit for Edison Volquez. So, like, it, he, net, he was always full tilt in preparation. He said he was never more confident in his entire life going into a game. Uh, it meant a lot to him because he always wondered how he would fare in, a, in an environment like that. And certainly he proved that not only could he pitch in the postseason, but he could pitch like one of the best ever in the postseason. But unfortunately, we never saw in the World Series because then the next series against San Francisco against a massive pitching pitching duel in the first game against Lincecum when Tim Lincecum was, you know, the freak and the great and everything like that. And he lost a classic game against him and they end up losing that the whole series against San Francisco with San Francisco going to the to the World Series. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it was unfortunate that he never got to the World Series. Um, you know, I, and in talking to, to players, his teammates, they just so badly wanted him to get there um, just because they saw how hard he worked. And, that you know, going, going back to even before the postseason when they clinched in the National League East that year, he was on the field, he threw a complete game, he was on the field, he was doing a post-game interview, everybody's inside. Roy's walking in going, oh, man, there's going to be champagne bottles, there's going to be champagne dripping up from the ceiling, everybody's going to be celebrating. Everybody's waiting for him to get into that clubhouse because they wanted him to be one of the first guys to pop the first bottle of champagne just because they knew that how, how badly he wanted to get there and he had never gotten there before. We're talking to Todd Zalicki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday on Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9. And then I, I remember the 2000, now we know about dream teams down here in Miami with LeBron and Wade and Bosch, but they put together Cliff Lee, Roy Holiday, Roy Oswald, Cole Hamels, the greatest pitching rotation in 2011. Uh, they were better than advertised because they ended up having the best record in baseball, winning all the games, and, and they had the highest warrior. The stats were through the roof. And they make it to the just the divisional series, so the first five round series. And you talk about in the book about how he went against Chris Carpenter, who he came through with the Blue Jay system, and one of his friends who he he hunts with. And it was just such a terrible ending to to this tremendous year with so much expectations. It was, you know, he loses one nothing. He gives up a run in the first inning uh, to the Cardinals, and then he pitches seven scoreless. You know, uh, the you know final final uh, the next seven innings, and. That was also probably one of the more memorable games I've ever covered just because those two were best friends. They were two Cy Young Award winners, uh, two pitchers at their peak. And, uh, you know, to lose one nothing in a game five like that uh, under all those circumstances, you know, going into the clubhouse after the game, you know, Roy was at his locker in full uniform about 30, 30 40 minutes after the final out. I mean, he could not bear to take off his uniform. Uh, that, that image of him just in disbelief that that he had lost and he had lost like that you know you give up one run in eight innings and you lose one nothing and now this magical season is over i mean they really you know you talk about you know you mentioned best rotations ever they really are up there and if you go by war uh the phillies rotation is that 2011 rotation had the highest war of any rotation in baseball history they were that good but because they didn't win at all, they're kind of uh, they're going to kind of kind of be forgotten. 
Yeah, three of the starters were in the top five for Cy Young, which I don't think has ever happened before, you know, before or again from that. But, you know, it's like I felt like when they lost, like I, I knew what the result was. I'm like, oh, win that game, win that game. And he didn't. He wasn't able. Yeah. And then and then you were hoping that after 2011, like you, you thought you were going to steal the Phillies. You know, they still had a core to have a good run. I mean, when you look at the Phillies now, it's a disaster. But they, uh, they you know, they went through that, that trough of that low period. Now with Bryce Harper back, they have expectations. But the point is, but 2012 was a disaster, and 2013 got worse, and, and he didn't pitch well those two years. Yeah, so in, the, in that game five against the Cardinals, um, he felt a pop in his back in the second inning, and, and, and basically that began the, the end of his career and a lot of the back pain that caused a lot of his, his issues uh, after his career. Um, you know, He had been working out so hard over the years, really since you know he was 13 years old, he never took a break that he had done some damage to his back. Finally, the, the vertebrae broke. Um, he suffered, fra- he had fractures in his back. The, the discs in his back had eroded. And he just found it too painful to pitch. And, you know, he wanted to make people happy. He felt pressure uh, to make people happy and, and to live up to his contract. And so he started taking pain medication um, to try to, to try to salvage what he could. And, and, and he just could not do it. And then it was real sad. I mean, he was definitely, you know, we hear about these athletes that are so high and then they just, when they, the game's gone, there's just that, that void. And he had really, you know, had trouble those last, you know, the next couple of years. And as you said, you know, he just was just struggling. He was trying to deal with his pain, uh, dealing with not pitching, not dealing with everything. And it was, it was very difficult. It, it, it really was. He battled depression. He had, he had anxiety issues. And then, you know, I mentioned the back pain. You know, he couldn't even, he, he was, he, he couldn't get into, into a car for more than a half an hour without being in pain. You know, it was, it was tough for him to travel. You think about, you know, you pitch for 16 years in the big leagues and you have all this money and boy, you're going to be traveling the world. And it was, diff, it was difficult for him to do that. You know, it was difficult for him to do that. You know, he, stro- he was, discouraged, disappointed with how he finished his career because he didn't really get to finish the way he wanted to finish it. Um, and, and so he was, he was lost early on. You know, ultimately, he ended up taking this mental skills coaching job with the Phillies, which kind of gave him a second purpose. And then the second pur- and he had another second purpose, which was uh, coaching his sons in baseball. And that was another kind of a second calling for him. So you know, it's unfortunate, certainly, that, that he didn't um, – get to see those things through but he i think he had started to you know maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel before before he died in the plane crash right and the plane crash i mean it's just it's so tragic i mean we think about the the players that have died and then the and when kobe passed away in the helicopter crash i mean just brought back to roy holiday and I, I grew up when i was little i remember thurman munson and i remember i was in i don't know what grade i was in elementary probably junior high school and i remember my friend who was a big yankee fan was just like you know couldn't believe that thurman munson died no he was actually during his career when he had the accident but you really you, know, you spelled out about the accident and what happened in terms of the crash but you know again there has been never you know no one's really figured out what happened like why you know he was an expert pilot and and why he crashed that day yeah you know it's it's everybody kind of has their theories and um you know i I talked with roy's dad who's a uh, a corporate pilot and that's how roy got his love of flying from his father and so you know roy roy's dad did his own investigative work and talked to a bunch of experts on on what possibly could have happened and i thought roy's dad said it best he's like listen the only person that can tell me what happened is roy and roy's not here anymore um you know brandy brandy i talked with brandy extensively for the book his wife and 
you know, she knows how it looks, the NTSC report, and there's video of him flying erratically, and, and you know, there were drugs in his system, you know, in the, from the coroner's report, and so, you know, she knows how, how it looks, um, she, you know, she made it clear to me, and I, I put this in the book, that she didn't think it was suicide, uh, I, I, I also believe that it wasn't, I, I just think it was a combination of he was being too aggressive flying, and he probably, you know, should not have been in the airplane. He was still under, you know, still medicating himself um, for depression and, and the back pain. And, you know, you mix all those things together with being aggressive with your flying, overly aggressive with your flying, erratic, however you want to call it, reckless. Um, and it was just a bad combination. So I think there was maybe just some sort of mistake was made. We've been talking to Todd Zalicki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday. Um, one last question is, what, what kind of response has this book got? I mean, from, I mean, you mentioned you've interviewed so many of his people he played with and, and everyone you talk to. I mean, you have some players like, you know, the, it's not just that they like him, they revere him. I mean, and I, and, and I just, it comes out now from this, uh, you know, all the catchers you've interviewed, everyone who actually caught him in a game and almost all, you know, all these other players that played with him. And, uh, it was just, so what kind of response have you got? Have people got to read this book and, and what, what, what are they saying to you? Yeah, you know, the response has been, uh, really been, really been nice so far. I mean, certainly, I, I you know, Phillies fans and Blue Jays fans have, have read it and they said, oh, I, I love the book because I was a big Roy Halladay fan. But the two things that I was kind of wondering about, and I've been pleased, I guess, that, it, that, that it's resonated with some people this way is number one, I've heard from current and former college and professional pitchers saying that this book could could really help them uh, in the future. Uh, maybe, you know, just being able to peek inside Roy Halladay's mind. You know, I, I, I combed any interview I could where he talked about his mental approach to the game and his his philosophies on preparation, etc. And they've said, boy, I, I read this book and it, it's given me some ideas. It's got me excited about going back to work again and, and pitching again. And so that's been great. And also from a mental health point of view, um, I've heard from people saying, hey, you know, I've I've battled – um, mental health issues throughout my life, and uh, you know, it, it's in a, in a way, it's it's been comforting to to know that you know I'm not alone out there. And and, and like Brandy said in the book, you know, maybe this can inspire some people to seek help if they're struggling. Because hey, if the you know, as she put, said, you know, if the mighty Roy Halladay um, can struggle when when it appears he has everything you know going for him, then you know then other people shouldn't feel like, you know, embarrassed or discouraged or ashamed or, or anything like that to maybe get some help on their own. We've been talking to Todd Zalecki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday. Todd, thanks a lot for coming on and uh, best of luck in the book. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great stuff from Todd Zalecki here on Ira on Sports. That's what you're listening to. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Talk a little NBA, Ira, because we're getting closer and closer to seeing basketball. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna, they're going to come back, and it's going to be exciting because it's on the 31st of July. So we're now we're going to be like a month away, and there's, they're going to play eight games. They're going to bring the teams back, the, the 23 teams, and then the 22 teams will play, and they're going to play eight games, and that's going to finish out the playoffs. And they're going to do just like, you know, it's going to be regular seating, not like the NHL, which is having a, like a pre-tournament. They're actually going to have a season, so you're going to actually watch some games and get some of these teams in. But they're not playing like the home field. What's home field? Like they're going to play in a bubble. It doesn't matter. And <laughs> And uh, the first game is, as we talk about, Zion's going to be back playing in the first game against the Jazz. And then the Lakers are playing the Clippers. And then all, 
all you're going to see this whole week is some of these players who's taking out Avery Bradley announces he's not going to be uh, Burton's for Washington's not uh, uh, Wilson Chandler for the Nets. Yeah, you're just seeing so some play- every now there's going to be we're just waiting for the big star to say he's not going to play in this. Uh, I also think I'll tell you when you start to get talking about this bubble. I don't know if these players for two and a half months are going to, you know, these other sports like baseball is not going to be in a bubble. Um, NHL's not, but they haven't really stressed what kind of bubble it's going to they be. They don't know. I don't they think. don't know. Yeah, <laughs> they haven't announced what the cities are going to be. Football's not going to be a bubble. Basketball is going to be the only team in a bubble. And I, I just don't know if these players can, can, you know, I think it's going to be a problem to be for two. I first I kept saying, I know he would say, you said this is going to happen. I think for two and a half months, when they see everybody else outside the bubble, living, you know, outside a bubble and they're going to be in a bubble, I think it's going to be a problem for some of these players. Yeah, but at least we'll have uh, basketball back, I guess, as for the fans' point of view, you know we're happy about, it. and hopefully uh, most of these players do, do end up playing. I remember last night might have been one of the most unheralded thirty for thirties I've ever heard. You of. didn't even know it was on, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't know it was on either. It was called the decision, and I think it, it went by the fact that some caller called in and said. Uh, you know, let's ha- talk about how LeBron made a decision to come to Miami so that we have this Miami connection down here. But I was reading uh, uh, Winhurst book, Brian Winhurst book from ESPN, and he's saying it came together between Jim Gray, Maverick Carter for the LeBron, and mm. Ari Emanuel at a Laker game. They were all sitting at the front row of the Laker game, and they're like, if LeBron announces where he's going to go, let's see, between the Heat, the Knicks, the Clippers, the Nets, the Bulls, and the Cavs, let's have a you know an event like that. And I've always said from day one, I think LeBron's been unfairly criticized. I mean, maybe you didn't like how the decision happened, how it happened, but it raised money for the the Boys and Girls Club. Um, a lot of people are saying it was in Cleveland. It was actually in New York when they did that in Greenwich, <laughs> actually Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, I, I just thought it was like, so what? He announced it. People announce these things all the time. It's always awkward. I, I didn't, I don't understand why he got it. I mean, I criticized LeBron for so many things. On this, I've never been criticized him on how he announced it. If, if people want to watch it, then what, who are you to say no? You know well, what I mean? Well, they said it. What you did, he should have told Dan Gilbert, well, that, not told Gilbert. That's the issue. You, you knew right away he wasn't going back to Cleveland once he said, I'm doing this on TV. Right. You know, and that, I felt like they were slighted a little eye. It would have been better. I, you know, honestly, it would have been nicer, I think, if you could do it over again, have him just, like, show up in Miami. Like, show up with mm-hmm. Bosch and Wade and just come out. I think that would have been more of a thing like, you know, we're going to have this thing and then have them all show up at the same time. Um, Major League Baseball, we are finally set to go. I honestly, for a long time there, didn't think it was going to happen, Ira, but we're, we're good to go for now. On July 23rd, playing in different parks. What's exciting about this, you're going to play your divisional opponents 10 times each, and then you're going to play and the other league the rest of the game. So one series with the other teams in your division. Six games so every other in, team. Inter, yeah. Like interleague games. So it'll be different and you're going to see, so you're going to see the teams play in the, the divisional games and you're not going to play. So most teams are not going to play the other teams in the league, which I, I think is better. I think in trying to have everybody fly around everywhere playing all these other teams and it's going to be teams in your in your geographic area. And I like the fact that they at least kept the divisions. They didn't break them up. They thought they were going to have Yankees and Mets were going to play in the same division and those things. So I think that works. But two big rules. One is that the runner on second base in the the set is, and the extra innings are going to put a runner on second base, so there won't be these long extra inning mm-hmm. games. That's one, which I think was okay. The minor leagues, I've seen it in minor league games, so I'm not so like... It's bizarre. <laughs> you don't like it as much. I, I think it's... it's. I agree. I think it's a little weird how they're going to structure it. They're doing it to, to prevent 17, 18 inning games, which I get. How often is there a 17 inning game? No. Twice a year? You know, it's you, this isn't really that big of an issue. I don't think people are going to like it. I don't think it'll be... I think it's gonna, they're going to do it... They choose the runner. Like you can choose... The, you can pinch run. You can pinch run. Okay, yeah, I, didn't, so I, didn't, can, I thought it would be the last out. It's or something the last like that. out, but you can pinch it for a pinch run for oh, that person. Run. So then then the person's out of the game. Then he's out of the game. No, that, that does add a little bit of a depth. But I, listen, I, I like baseball for the strategy. It's like a chess match. So I like that, okay, maybe this hitter will walk or this guy, you know, will, will um, you know, will walk this guy intentionally to get a double play. We'll bunt with this guy. So I do 
do like that it's adding more of the National League strategy to it. Right. And then the second rule is the DH, which has been, I, I was researching this and I loved it. In the first, when the rules were started in 18, like before 1883, you had to, you had to pitch underhand. It was like slow pitch softball mm-hmm. where you would throw the ball up and get out of the way. And then suddenly they made pitchers become really more important where you're actually the pitcher had a value rather than just getting out of the way. And then in 1892, people realized, well, maybe we should have just the pitcher. They voted, this is not 1992, 1892, seven to five, they voted against the DH. Think if they would have won, we would always yeah. have had a DH in 1892. <laughs> but in 1968, nobody was scoring runs. Uh, Bob Gibson had a 1.12 ERA. Nobody, like six players had over 300. So it was started the minor leagues in 69. And by 73, the American League was like, we've got to have the DH. We did it. The National League said, you can start with the DH. And back then, the leagues sort of were run separately. Major League mm-hmm. Baseball was sort of an overseer, but it was really each league. And so the American League started, and then it was the National League that said, you tried for three years, we'll see if we like it. And then we had Keith Law on who was talking about this. In 1980, the vote was the Phillies owner told the general manager, Bill Giles, he says, vote for the DH, vote for the DH. I want the DH. We have Greg Luzinski. We have all these other big players that can't run, so we'll have the DH. And the Pirates said, if the Phillies vote for DH, we'll vote for a DH. And Giles went on a fishing, I mean, uh, Carl Carpenter or Harding Carter went on our Carpenter, the owners with the Phillies went on a fishing trip. And when he went up to the, the uh, voting, they said, we're going to have a two year wait on that. So Giles says, I don't know how to vote with two years to wait. I'm not sure what to do. So he abstained. So the final vote was five, four, the five against the DH, four against and three abstention. So it lost by one vote. So if he, and, and Giles said, when he came back from the fishing trip, he goes, I mean, uh, uh, Carpenter said, what did you do, Giles? Like I told you to vote for the DH and he didn't do it. And then <laughs> after that, that was 1980. And then for reasons because of economic, the National League said, we don't want to put DH because the DH started getting paid more money. Yeah. And then it was all the union red. That's why for the next, we should have DH in 1980. And now we're 30 years later or 40 years later, still without a DH. Maybe, but we're going to have it now. Maybe it's because I'm an American League fan, you know, being a Yankee fan. Maybe it's because I'll never get over seeing Chen Ming Wong ruin his career uh, running over second <laughs> base. But it just, I, I don't get the argument for not wanting the DH by National League guys. Do you enjoy the free out every inning? Do you, you know, like these guys, pitchers' numbers are inflated. They're not going out there to hit. Just the whole thing just. It, it, I don't know. I just never liked the DH, so I'm glad they were coming around on this one. I agree. I think the DH, I think it just takes away the pitchers. It's just, to me, an easy out. It doesn't happen. They're not bunning anymore. They're not running out. And, and with injuries and everything, I think most, look, managers don't want these pitchers up there anyway. No. They're so nervous. About it. They're, they're only pitching six innings a game anyway, so mm-hmm. let's uh, get rid of it in terms of just having the DH. Before we uh, wrap this up, what you, is there any, like, where are you drawing the line on stats this year? Like, I feel like I'm pretty much going to let everything go. But if there's a 400 hitter in 60 games, I'm not really putting them up as a 400 hitter, Ira. And, you know, there's a very – if someone gets 15 extra RBIs off guys in the 10th inning starting on second base, not really counting that as an RBI. So (laughs) I do have some asterisks for this season. Well, the 400 hitter, clearly – I mean, I can't believe anyone's going to think a 400 is a 400 hitter with 60 games. I mean, it's a joke. Yeah. So It's uh, it's going to be crazy how it played out. But regardless, I'm glad baseball is back. Speaking of baseball, let's go to John Shea right now on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're talking to John Shea author of 24 and it's a book john you wrote with willie mays so it's a it's an autobiography sort of well you know it's a shame i mean so much in baseball we talked to we're just talking about sosa mcguire last week 
um, is about numbers. And the 660, when I was growing up, I mean, that was the number of Willie Mays' home run. But when you when you realize that he lost two years to the war after, so he won the rookie, rookie of the year 51, and second and third year, he's he's serving in the military. Now, he didn't tr- actually go to Korea, but he, he served in the military and couldn't play in 52, 53, but then came back in 54 and then won the, won the title and, and was the MVP of the league. So, man, if he would have had those, you know, other 80 home runs, perhaps he's the one who would have broken uh, Roos' record instead of Aaron. And that, that was a shame in terms of when you look at his total numbers for someone who played for 24, 24 years. And you mentioned in the book, though, that he played like today players take the off days. They, you know, the whole load management thing. I mean, you had 13 straight years. He played 150 games. He played it in, 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 in from 51 to 62 in 99% of every game. I mean, really, you're talking about a player who not only to go to the disabled list, but just decided to play every single game. And he didn't go to the disabled list until his final season, his, his uh, 22nd season in the big leagues when he was uh, 42 years old. And, you know, by then, uh, you know, most people are five or ten years retired, and he's still playing the game. And Yeah, it, it, people talk about Candlestick Park. Well, maybe that robbed him of home runs with that wind that would just knock down any fly ball to left field. But he didn't complain. He adjusted, and he learned how to go to all fields and hit home runs out there. So, anyway, I think a bigger deal than Candlestick, as like you said, was the military those two years – and yes, he was rookie of the year in '51, an MVP in '54, and in between he really had nothing because he missed all of '53 and most of '52. So he comes out of the Army, and his first two years with the Giants hits 92 home runs. So just imagine if he hit just maybe 60, conservatively, conservatively speaking, and you add 60 to his total of 660, and that's 720. And the Babe had 714. So maybe it would have been Willie who passed the babe instead of Hank. Um, but, but again, you know, Willie didn't complain about it. He doesn't complain about it. He adjusted. And any time I ask him about that for the sake of the book or, or just, uh, just talking, <laughs> he always says, John, what's wrong with 660? And I said, yeah, you're right, Willie. What is wrong with 660? Nothing. Well, and also, and you and you mentioned in the book. I mean, here's someone, and you and he is throughout the book. He prided himself on his defense, and I think that's when people are looking at who's the greatest baseball player of all time. Is I mean, it comes across that he is the greatest defensive player of all time, and he's arguably the greatest offensive player of all time. So, I mean, it's, it's very much like Jordan. You know, when Mike, we look at Michael Jordan, and they say compared to LeBron, they're like, well, LeBron, whatever. But defensively, Jordan is unparalleled. And and I think you mentioned in the book how he, Willie Mays wants to be known as a defensive player more than he wants to be known as an offensive player. Well, I mean, let me ask you a question. What do you think Willie's best tool was? Like with Jordan, could you say what's better, his offense or defense? With, with Willie, would you say his hitting is better than his fielding, which is better than his slugging, which is better than his throwing, which is better than his running? I mean, I don't know. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> no. And I think you really spell yeah. it in the book that he was great, that you said he he's not just a five-tool player, he's a six-tool player, because he also had the mental yeah, side sure. of the game. So that's what made him, and that's what that's where he would go down as the greatest player of all time, the fact that he was able to do everything. at, at There was a level where it's hard to say someone could do it better than he could at all those tools. Yeah, and when, when I asked him, I said, okay, so we, we, we haven't figured out which is a better tool, because they're all good. I said, what tool are you most proud of? I mean, here's a man with 660 home runs, 300 lifetime batting average, 3,000 hits, 
I mean, just you can go on and on. He's the only man in history who homered in every inning, one through sixteen. Um, you can just, I mean, the, the stats are just uh, through the roof. And I said, "What, what, uh, what tool are you most proud of?" And he said, "Defense." And I said, "Whoa!" He said, "Defense, you can control every day. Defense is going to win you games. You can't count on offense. You could hit the ball as hard as you can, but it's going to be right at the guy. Defense." You can contribute um, with a play, a throw, uh, something that you can tip off a teammate on, whatever it is. And he took more, more proud in his defense, and imagine that, than all the things he did on offense. So it, it just says a lot about the guy, which is kind of a team-oriented thing. I mean, numbers is what get you paid. Numbers is what set you apart. I mean, all these DHs are in the Hall of Fame now. It doesn't matter that they never played defense. <laughs> right. But Willie, it's like that's that's all that mattered to him. The, the, the hitting was a bonus. And, uh, and and you're right, the sixth tool he's, he's also proud of, and that's the mental side of the game, the thinking, the imagining, the envisioning, the, the um, playing out the game before it happens, anticipating the play before it happens, letting – teammates know what's what to expect before it happens and you know he had this pregame meetings with uh, Gaylord Perry and Juan Marichal before their start they called them the three-minute meetings in which what's working in the bullpen okay here's how I'm going to play him here's how you want to pitch him and then Marichal and Perry did so because they knew that Mays is really the captain of the defense and if you pitch to the defense you're going to succeed but more than that um you know, Willie Willie just uh, made sure he did things for his team to win. One example is he's on second base, ball hit up the middle, easily going to score a maze, right? Well, he intentionally slows down around third to draw the throw home, knowing he's going to score anyway, so the runner behind him can advance to second base. Now he's in the scoring position. So he'd always throw off the defense. Many times he scored from first base on singles. One time he scored from first base on a Willie McCovey bunt. <laughs> and it just goes to show you if he if the defense is going to be lazy with the throw, he's going to take the extra base. If the defense is out of position, he's going to take the extra base. And that bunt play, obviously with McCovey, it's a lot of these guys now, they always had the shift on. Big, powerful, left-handed hitter. And he bunted down the third baseline against Philly and went all the way into left field, base scorer standing up. Just incredible stuff. Well, John, thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports. I really appreciate I This book is tremendous. Um, any baseball fan should be reading about him. He is a true inspiration to people. And uh, you really you know, cover his entire career. And just I like the stories and how you presented the book. Everything was perfect. Uh, thanks a lot. For, thank you so much for writing the book. It, was, it gave me a lot of pleasure reading it. And I really enjoyed learning things. So, again, thanks, John, for, for writing the book and for coming on Iron Sports. Well, Ira, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Great stuff there from John Shea here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, what's your plan for this week, man? We're getting closer to, to being fully open. 
Well, we have the Rocket Mortgage Classic, a, a golf in uh, in Detroit. So that's going to be the one thing that's going to come up. I'm excited about. Um, but you know, no, you know, you're starting to feel like all these sports. It's all going to hit us at one time, and they're all going to be, be overwhelmed here. On yes, and on so sports. that's going to be. You know, we're going to see and we see with football and, and everything. It's 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 just going to. Someone predicted it was going to happen, and it looks like that's what's going to. We're going to have every sport at the same time. And Ira, next week, massive interview, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Oh, us. I'm so excited. I mean, growing up, Rod Carew was one of my favorite. He, I mean, he was a star player for the. Minnesota Twins, and then he was a, then a superstar player for the Angels, and one of the greatest hitters in the history of baseball, uh, and won seven batting titles. Only two players have ever Great. won more than that. So I'm so excited to have him on our show. He has a new book out, and it's a you know he's a first ballot a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest hitters of all time. It's going to be a great stuff. It's next week on Iron Sports.